This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to an episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy over there who've done another stellar job of bringing us through to 11 o'clock. We've got an hour now to talk to you about science, and it's going to be a fiery show. In the studio with me are two distractingly sexy women. I've got Dr. Crystal right in front of me. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. It's great to be here. Dr. Jen. <laughs> Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm going to close. So my... much that we could say already. Oh, I know. And uh, Chris KP. Let's Hello. <laughs> I'm trying to focus. <laughs> <laughs> so, folks, uh, hey, before we start on that, uh, i got to tell you about an experience I had this morning. It was a bit scary. Who was distractingly sexy? No, I went to a bridal a bridal expo. Oh, Shane, what were you thinking? Well, my dad's a celebrant, and he was set up not far from my house, and I thought oh, I'd better go and check out his digs. And I said, what time does it start? And he said, 10 o'clock. And I said, what time will you be there? And he said, 9 o'clock. And I thought, good, I want to get there before the bride, <laughs> future brides turn up. But it was... I I'm still smelling the potpourri. Mm. It was it was incredible. Anyway, a bit scary. I'm glad I never did that <laughs> before I got married. But, um, folks, if you're wondering why we're making these sexy comments, um, we should bring you up to speed about something that happened uh, during the week. Um, one of the uh, Nobel Prize winners from the uh, year 2001 for uh, physiology and medicine, a uh, professor, former professor, mm, Tim Hunt. Exactly. Made some comments uh, about uh, what it's like to have girls in the lab, and this has caused a bit of a storm. And he said, uh, let me tell you about my trouble with girls. Three things happen when they're in the lab. You fall in love with them, they fall in love with you, and when you criticise them, they cry. <laughs> I'm so, uh, I'm so speechless. I've read and heard that so many yeah. times now, and I still just can't fathom that somebody could think that way. Now, he got the Nobel Prize. I thought he got the Nobel Prize for being an asshole, but actually, no. <laughs> um, it was for something about how cells divide, but that's irrelevant now. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> um, and I am calling on the Nobel Committee to strip him of his award, uh, if possible. I mean, we do defrock people. They have to do it in a non-sexy way. <laughs> Maybe we could get four undergraduate women to uh, strip him of his Nobel Prize. Well, anyway, the response has been swift and uh, appropriately funny, I should say, um, by many uh, female and male scientists around mm. the world to indicate that having women in the lab is actually not as risky as it may seem. <laughs> Although Chris KP and I are having trouble in the studio today. It's very hard to concentrate. It's very distracting. But I'm well, a of course, when we're here. <laughs> well, it looks interesting to map out the response to this. Um, you know, obviously you've got the outrage. You've got people mm. calling it out saying this is not acceptable. You know, this is, this is a, a, a dreadful way um, to be representing women in science. And actually the response has been, here's a better way of doing it. And I've really enjoyed watching some mm. of the photographs that have been posted on mm. social media mm. of women who are, you know, dressed head to toe in their protective gear, who are, you know, out there fighting. Ebola or assembling telescopes or working in um, uh, harsh um, you know, outdoor environments
students who are scuba diving, who are climbing mountains, doing science all over the world, who are getting on with it, frankly. Yeah. And, um, and some I th- great videos too. Some fantastic videos. But I, I think that you know it, it does highlight the fact that bias in science still exists very much, um, you know, and, and that there are real distinct barriers to women who are looking to build a career pathway um, in science. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's come out of this is, is you know, a greater awareness of the fact that, you know, people are, oh, well, surely people don't think like that these days. It's like, well, they do. And that a lot of these people are at very senior levels, you know, who are Nobel Prize winners, who sit on grant committees, who are responsible for mentoring and, and um, bringing up the next generation mm. of scientists may still hold these views around the relative capabilities of people based on their gender, which just isn't isn't true. And we were talking just before about a woman who wrote into science, you know, into an advice column saying, what do I do? I've got this great new postdoc, great boss, but he keeps looking down my shirt. And the advice which was printed but then later retracted was, put up with it, it's not sexual harassment, you need to mm. be on your boss's good side, basically, because good work's going to come out of this. Mm. And the fact that that actually <clears throat> came out, and sure, it was later retracted, but to be advising women of that is just appalling. Yeah. Look, I have to say, I think um, in many regards, I mean, we have to be fair here and say in many regards, our workplace has not caught up. Uh, many of the workplaces that a lot of us work in have have just simply not caught up to where they need to be. Mm. So there is a lot of work to be done. And that being said, comments from people like this, I, I think what we need to remember, though, and this, this is often the critique that comes out of our sporting heroes and so forth, just because you're really good at swinging a bat, doesn't mean you're a socially responsible individual. Correct. Mm. Just because yep. this guy's got a Nobel Prize in a scientific field, he can still be a moron on the yep. street. But getting yeah. that Nobel Prize lands some responsibility you on his hope. shoulders you to think hope. very carefully yeah. about what he says in, a, in in any space, let alone a public yeah. space. And for setting a good role model, uh, good examples. Mm. In fact, um, Brian Schmidt, who's a Nobel Prize mm. winner here in Australia, is actually really heavily committed to gender equity mm. in science and has yeah. been a, a, a pivotal part of forming some action groups around improving um, uh, gender equity in science. I'm very so, outspoken about it. So yes. I think there are some great examples of Nobel Prize winners who have used their position and their raised um, sort of profile to actually bring about positive change. And I think that's one thing that needs to come out of this is that mm. we've had the outrage, we've had the funny photos on Twitter, you know, what's next? Like, how do you actually mm. use the fact that we've elevated this this issue that, you know, there are still gender um, discrimination in science? How do we actually say, okay, and so as a result of this, we actually now need to make sure that we do enact po- positive policies or, you know, how do we actually build this conversation beyond outrage into action yeah, that totally brings about agree. change? Yeah, and he may be the best favour um, we could ever hope for in terms of a catalyst for action in these areas to call out this kind of behaviour wherever it sits. Well, it certainly makes it now impossible for people to say, no, discrimination doesn't happen hmm. because Absolutely. we've mm. all seen it. At the very top, mm. at the very top. So uh, thank you, University College London, and for separating yourself from this honorary professor. The word honorary really doesn't fit, <laughs> does it? Um, <laughs> Tim Hunt. We bid you farewell. Have a good life. Uh, 72, got a few years left in him, I suspect. Um, enjoy those conversations. You'll have no doubt whenever you walk into a pub and come across a female scientist. <laughs> I hope they don't cry. Um, you're more likely to get slapped. And they won't fall in love with you. <laughs> they certainly won't be falling <laughs> in love with you. I'm reasonably confident. But, uh, folks, if you're wondering... Um, this show uh, typically every year has a 50% balance um, on the panel right down the line for gender and we work very hard to make sure that's the case and Chris and I work even harder to keep up with our female colleagues who tend to be slightly better at communicating than we are and most of the time. Sorry, I've chinned out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's my point. We're going to jump into some science now. Dr. Jim, should we start with you? Well, we were kind of already talking about a, an old fossil, so I'll continue, <laughs> with, the, continue with the theme. One that we want to dig up, though. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. 
So the conventional wisdom around fossils has always been that, you know, during the whole process of fossilisation, the organic compounds, so anything that's, you know, made up of kind of cells and tissue, the soft tissue stuff, just disappears. So all the proteins mm. are lost. Yeah. And all that remains and gets um, fossilised is the kind of mineral bits. So, you know, we end up with teeth and bones and, you know, all the hard bits. But over the last sort of 20 years or so, scientists have found some... Um, evidence of you know these soft organic materials like skin and feathers and muscle cells and stuff but only in exceptionally rare and exceptionally well preserved cases so the idea was that yes maybe sometimes these things get preserved but it's it's exceptionally uncommon that that should happen but then this week a paper came out in um, nature communication out of the um, imperial college london and they looked at eight different fossils they're 75 million years old so that's about 10 million years before t-rex so you know way back and they they were completely non-remarkable fossils. They were Canadian fossils picked up off the surface, quite degraded looking. You know, there would be no indication that they would be particularly well um, preserved. And then they used a scanning electron microscope to look, you know, really close in at the nanoscale. Um, at the internal composition of these fossils. And in six out of eight of these totally non-remarkable fossils, they found evidence of preserved, um, you know, internal soft structures, basically. So blood cells, which uh, definitely can't be contaminated human blood cells um, because they have nuclei. And all our mm. listeners would know that human red blood cells don't have nuclei. Mm, yeah. How exciting. Yeah. yeah. And then when they looked at the chemical composition of these um, blood cells, they are not that dissimilar from emu the composition mm. of emu blood, which kind of lends more weight to the fact that they're probably dinosaur. Because birds mm. have nucleated red cells. Yeah, and just... Uh, we're going to rebuild think. dinosaurs with emus. That is so cool. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> Hold your horses. No. Um, but they also found um, structures that look very much like bone collagen. Oh, wow. Ah. Which is, you know, pretty exciting, these internal structures. So we still don't have DNA, so no, we're not going to be creating Jurassic Park anytime soon. Although I read an interview, <laughs> I read an interview with one of the lead authors who says she wouldn't be surprised if, if we went back to these incredibly well-preserved fossils that maybe there could be DNA, whether how degraded it is or not, we don't know. But there's other really exciting things that could come out of these discoveries, kind of more questions around the physiology of dinosaurs, because we still don't know whether dinosaurs were endotherms or ectotherms. <sighs> Yeah. And mm. there's a really strong correlation between red blood cell size and metabolism in reptiles and birds. So if we can actually get a good look at what these blood cells would have looked like, we might be able to answer a whole lot of other questions. Very cool. Someone's going to have to explain to me one day why we expect DNA to actually, um, you know, pull itself apart as a molecule. I really understood that. As in why it degrades? Mm. Well, I think just because it's a really complex protein and it just it's doesn't stand the test of... Sorry, but... Polymer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. No, yes, right. I apologise. <laughs> but, you know, because it's very complex, we just don't expect it to kind of stand yeah. the test of time. It's interesting. But there's so much of it. You'd think we'd just... Anyway, very exciting stuff. Yes, it's very yeah, exciting. Very exciting stuff. They must have had this feeling when they'd put the samples into an SEM, which is a high-vacuum environment, typically, oh, crap. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> is that soft material? <laughs> Did we just put that into a vacuum? Ouch! Yeah. 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 Presumably they've got plenty more. I, 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 I love imagining that. It's not a eureka moment it's a oh is that contamination (laughs) (laughs) exactly dr crystal um this week i've um i've been looking into the the, and for for a number of uh, months now the uh the outbreak of mers in south korea Mm. middle eastern respiratory syndrome and this is um again one of those examples of a disease that's named after a place uh, middle eastern respiratory syndrome because it was a disease that was um kind of came out of um 
out of the Gulf region in, in sort of Saudi Arabia in 2012, but is now actually um, sprung up in South Korea, and so um, and and is exhibiting a, a quite different um, uh, pattern of of, um, of spread in that um, uh, over the last um, couple of months, uh, South Korea's actually had 138 confirmed infections and 14 deaths, and it seems to be spreading at a rate that's more accelerated than it was um, previously in um, in Saudi Arabia, because um, previously they thought that this um, this MERS coronavirus. It's coronavirus. It's the same sort of virus that the common cold is, mm-hmm. um, and the same sort of virus and same family as SARS. Mm-hmm. But it's been quite different from SARS in that um, it didn't seem to spread easily from person to person, which is a big difference between MERS and SARS. SARS seemed mm-hmm. to spread far more easily, um, and then in Saudi Arabia and in, in the in the sort of Middle Eastern countries where this has been um, uh, uh, sort of propagating over the last couple of years, um, there's about 1,200 people who had exper- been infected and around um, 450 deaths. So it's got a mortality rate of around sort of 30%, but it was thought to be very difficult to spread from person to person um, because the virus tends to live very deep in your tissues. It isn't easily sort of coughed out into into the air. And it's thought that it might have originated in bats because a lot of viruses mm-hmm. originate in bats and it's somehow transferred to humans. And there was thought to be some link with camels, that there was some kind of contact with camels or some kind of camel to human transmission that, that was, again, wasn't very clear whether it was eating camel meat or being a camel farmer or, mm. you know, there really wasn't, it's still not very clear how this how this disease is transmitted. Um, but when it got to South Korea, it seemed to um, uh, the first patient came to South Korea in May, and um, and it seems to have uh, spread quite quickly through the health system. So it seems to be mm. that they're all hospital acquired okay. cases, and um, and so it's it's not really clear how that's occurring and whether or not there's something to do with being in the hospital environment in terms of being um, on respiratory equipment or being in close confinement or you know the healthcare system in South Korea being quite differently structured that has allowed long waiting times that has allowed more people to be exposed and, and anyway so um so there's some interesting questions that have come up as to you know why is the, the the spread of disease in south korea so markedly different to how it's been behaving in other countries um there's a question about whether or not it had mutated and um, they've actually sequenced the virus and said that no there's there's it's, it's um almost identical to the past sequences that we've seen from the middle east so it's not mm-hmm. that it's suddenly acquired a new mutation but it's something to keep an eye on at the moment mm-hmm. so yeah it's um and it, it just again kind of comes back to you know we've, we've had the Ebola outbreak. Um, now we've got this interesting case of MERS. Um, you know, we really have to think carefully about: Are we ready? Are we prepared? Mm. You know, there's a lot of bird flu going around the US at the moment in birds, not in people. But there's a, a, quite a substantial bird flu epidemic happening in the US right now. We know that's a disease that can transfer to humans relatively easily under certain circumstances. So um, it's, a, it's a kind of a question that like, we have to really quite think quite carefully as a as a nation and as a as a, as a world: Are we are we are we really prepared for these mm. inf- emerging mm. infectious diseases? always get the feeling that uh, biology is trying to find a point of balance <laughs> given we're so out of balance with our environment. Anyway, on that cheerful note, Chris, Pete, you got about a minute. Uh, no sweat, pal. Um, I want to tell you about um, a bunch of scientists at Iowa State University who have been uh, they've been di- di- dipping sort of wire, little tiny bits of wire optical fibre into liquid silicon, and then you produce a bit of wire covered in liquid silicon. When the silicon dries, you bring you pull the little wire out of it, and what you've got is a tube, a very oh, fine tube. Nice. They've attached these fine tubes in sort of networks, if you like, um, to a 
you know, to pumps or small uh, air pumps, which they then control via a computer, essentially. And what they've then made is basically microscopic robot fingers. Oh, very cool. Yeah, which they have recently demonstrated as being able to pick up and gently manipulate an ant's body without damaging it. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a That's party trick and a half. It yeah. is, isn't it? And so they're Because I've tried that with chopsticks and it just doesn't work. <laughs> well, yeah, but well, see, yeah. They're, they're, these, these are actually coilable tubes, right, but yeah, they can yeah. press them in and out so they uncoil and recoil, etc. Mm. They're talking about this being an option for microscopic robot surgery. Wow. Microscopic robot surgery, for those of you who missed that. Um, and I personally think it's going to be better than humans, uh, intelligence aside, because they're not, you know, limited to ten fingers Big and thumbs. Big stubs. And they're, yeah. they're, they're tiny. If you, need, yeah. if you need for a particular surgery, you know, 35 little tiny fingers, yeah, we can do that for you. Mm. The wow. complexity is just an issue of, um, of, of, you know, processing power, really. But, yeah, so microscopic surgery using tiny, flexible, air-controlled fingers uh, may be the future. It's very cool stuff. I can imagine that in my brain right now. <laughs> That's no, where I yeah, imagine most things. That's where it would happen. You know, <laughs> oh, right. Oh, position <laughs> in your brain. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All righty. Uh, on that note, we're going to take a short break for some tunes, folks, and we'll be back in a moment with our guest for today. We, um, we're going to be talking uh, with uh, Kylie, from, Kylie Smith from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Some very interesting work that she's doing down there. And, um, yeah, here's some music for you. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. Three, triple, ah. You are listening to Three Triple R, and thankfully, folks, you don't have the same visual I just had of Chris <laughs> KB dancing. Uh, it was not good. I can't control my shimmering. <laughs> it was very disturbing. I'm trying. You don't know, you mean shimmying? Um, <laughs> you, you tell me I don't glow? Thanks. Thanks so much. Distractingly so. <laughs> there's, there's some things you can't unsee. Anyway, uh, I'm putting Chris KP and what he just did in the same category as when the alien first burst out of John Hurt. Uh, those oh, two things have been with me. I'm honoured. Yeah. Oh, it's been with me for a long time. Anyway, uh, moving on. We have in the studio Miss Kylie Smith. She's a speech pathologist and PhD candidate at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute down at the Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Kylie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, you work in this really interesting area of um, children and stuttering. And uh, where I want to start, actually, is is something that I've always wondered, and I know you've been looking into this, is that the link between anxiety and stuttering and, you know, which one's the horse and which one's the cart here? Like, what comes first? Because uh, I I suppose historically we've always had this idea that this is an anxiety disorder. Is that Mm -hmm. that right? No, you're right when you say that the two are associated. Um, We know that adults with stuttering are much more likely to have an anxiety disorder, Um, uh, predominantly uh, an anxiety disorder that affects the social domain, like social phobia, Mm -hmm. um, when compared to to adults who don't stutter. And then when we look at young children, so children aged two to four, we see that they're not more anxious right. than their um, fluent peers, and they're not at risk of develop. they don't look like they're at risk of developing anxiety either. So that sort of suggests that the relationship between anxiety and stuttering, that anxiety is a byproduct of the stuttering right. rather than a cause of the stuttering. But so we've got this great information, this great research with the kids, and we've got the research on the adults, but then there's this big gap and we don't mm-hmm. really know much more about um, stuttering, um, sorry, anxiety onset in stuttering, which is 
hopefully what my study is going to help shed some light on. Mm. So now you're you're looking at uh, kids that are a bit older though, around yeah. eleven years. That's so we've right. got we've got anxiety driving stuttering in adults. Yes. Yeah. Not driving uh, stuttering or, or associated, associated yeah. with it, and whereas in young kids it's quite the opposite. The yeah. stuttering drives or associated with it, but yeah. it is the lead cause of, I guess, the anxiety in those kids, which is completely understandable. I mean, the social impact there must be extreme. But in that mid range, mm-hmm. I mean, what's going on there? We don't know. Mm. We don't know. Um, th- th- uh, w- there's a lot of research looking at um, the social implications of having a stutter, but then taking that one step further and looking at the actual, the actual um, presence of anxiety, we just don't... There is There have been some studies, but they've been smaller studies or they've been various methodological... methodological <laughs> tough one. <laughs> um, shortcomings that have yep. sort of put us in a position where we can't really draw any conclusions based on what we've got so far what what do we know about stuttering as a process in terms of speech and and you know what the brain's trying to do but then for whatever reason the the person can't get the words out i mean what's actually happening do we have an idea about that we don't know exactly what causes stuttering or what it is but we, we we know that there's a genetic basis to stuttering but then that alone is probably not enough. There needs to be other things going on. So there's mm. triggers. So you think about the complexity of um, the spoken language. Mm. So children don't stutter from the moment they start talking. They often develop stuttering when their language systems become a bit more complex mm-hmm. and that um, stress of moving from syllable to syllable to syllable. So that often, the stuttering onset often occurs around two to four years of age as those systems get more complex. So the triggers need to be there. And then there's modulating factors as well, such as um, physiological, conditions and psychological conditions so that's referring to the anxiety that can certainly um for a person who stutters when they're in a situation that co- that's um anxiety provoking that can increase their stuttering so most likely all these things the genetic um component the triggers and the modulating factors need to be present for stuttering to develop does it occur in all languages yes so it doesn't matter what language you speak. So this is a this is a human condition. It is. Yeah. So it's not something that particular languages are making worse. Is there any differentiation? That's a good question, and I, I'm not that I'm aware of. Hmm. Um, one, one of the things I I remember years ago uh, going to conferences, and there was a, a gentleman who um, who had quite a strong stutter. I remember it was a very seminal moment for many of us because we all worked with this person when he got up at this conference and gave a presentation mm-hmm. and and did it and got through it yeah. and without without getting himself caught up. So as a speech pathologist, how do you get someone with a stutter to that point? I mean, what what's the process of them controlling it? Well, stuttering therapy depends on the age of the of the um, the participant, but it also depends on the the severity of the stutter. So, with an, a typical adult, um, with a typical adult client, what we would do is we would teach a technique where they learn to control their stutter using a different way of talking called smooth speech or prolonged speech, okay. and that's where they use more rhythmic speech. Um, and so, they first they use this technique at a very um, unnatural level, and as they get better at it then we start to make it more natural so that is a way of managing the stuttering not curing the stutter we don't talk in terms of curing Mm, the stuttering so with a lot of adults um, with stuttering it's going to be a lifelong um, management um, 
effort. It's not just going to be go and do therapy and then you're right to go. So with the man that you heard talking, mm. the chances are he may have been using some sort of technique to control his stuttering. It may also be the rehearsal effect of going over it. And over. That sort of thing mm. may potentially help people who stutter as well if they, they know exactly what they're going to say. Uh, it was an incredible moment. I mean, everyone in the audience was just extraordinarily proud of this individual doing yeah. it because it was a, it was a challenging challenging thing for him to face, obviously, and I a difficult imagine. thing. And, and we'd, we'd known him for many years and he'd never given a presentation. And for him to actually do it, we would, you know, I mean, some of us, not just the ladies in the room, almost cried. You know, yeah. it was just, um, it was really uh, one of those moments where you thought, gee, what an achievement. The rest of us just felt a bit crap mm-hmm. at what we'd yeah. achieved by comparison. I think you're highlighting the, um, a real, uh, something that's really specific to this disorder. Is it's not, it doesn't just affect the domain of, the, of communication mm, it, yeah. it's a it affects every area yeah, of yeah. life um, yeah. that's why it's so fascinating and mm. why I'm, I'm so passionate about working in the area mm. and are there any adults out there who have a stutter but don't have the anxiety i mean mm. is it just that the people who end up coming to speech pathologists that you know they don't only stutter but it's really having a massive impact on their lives um the research that we have looking at anxiety and stuttering in adults is mostly with a clinical sample so we don't know that's why that epidemiological research is so important, looking at um, adults in the community. There, uh, there has been a study looking at adults in the community with stuttering and looking at their anxiety levels, and they were at elevated levels. Um, but the research that's showing that the adults are at significantly high risk, that's based on a clinical sample. Mm-hmm. So we don't know if all people with stuttering are at risk of developing anxiety or if there are subtypes, and that's why we, we need that... Um, that research looking at community mm. uh, community samples um, I'm interested I mean obviously the work you're, you're doing um, is designed to identify triggers and processes that might connect anxiety to stuttering but if we know that, that, that stuttering is you know is an issue in younger children and that's better understood what sort of training is given to people who work with those children um, before we get your information, I guess, before they have a chance for this to, to, to lead to anxiety, is there something that childcare workers and teachers should or shouldn't be doing if they're dealing with a child that has a stutter? Um, <clears throat> so you're asking what if... Sorry, if a child's got a stutter uh-huh. um, and they potentially have anxiety as well... Yes, we or, they, or, they could de- or they could develop it potentially in the future. What should childcare workers yeah. and teachers be doing? Well, th- that's exactly why we need this information. We need to firstly identify if that is an issue, and if it is, we need to start um, doing some public health awareness around this because certainly you can imagine that childcare workers and teachers have the potential to really make a really Absolutely. great difference, but they yeah. could also... Um, Mm. potentially make things a lot harder for a child who stutters if they believe that pushing them into situations... So there's no, there's no sort of standardised approach no. now? Okay. No, mm. there's not. Interesting. Because you don't want to jump too soon, because I've no, exactly. many of little kids who stutter when they're just in that phase of starting to develop full sentences, and they just, yeah. their brain's going so fast, and they just can't get the word and also out, the, and they stutter, but it goes. And away. they're also learning, learning a lot of new words and a whole new social context. Mm. So it's a, it's a huge learning curve for them already. But I, I, I don't know. I don't it <laughs> is. My, my own daughter started for a short period where she yeah, had some repetition. Yes. Um, natural recovery recovery from stuttering is, is very high. Mm-hmm. So uh, the research at Murdoch um, has just found the cumulative incidence of stuttering at four was around 12%. And then in the general community, the incidence is around 1%. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there is a huge scope for natural recovery. It's, it's a fascinating field and one yeah. that obviously has been, you know, looked into for a long, long time. And, and I think it, 
it's one where you know we're still learning so much about how humans process language and and many of these things are you know these these errors that the human species kind of comes up with are there for some reason you know and, and it may be that it's part of the learning pro- you know there's there's usually some reason that we haven't called on to but um look i i think it's um it's fascinating you're looking into this how long have you got um to go on your phd I've got 18 months to go 18 months plenty of time to sort this out <laughs> no pressure <laughs> yeah, no pressure <laughs> golly thanks so much for coming in and talking yeah. to us today and uh, keep up the good work down there at the children's because i know um the impact you must have on a lot of families with this particular issue is is extraordinary and you know having seen adults and and kids with this as you say the social and other impact around learning education everything is extraordinary it's not just about speaking mm-hmm. it's about the whole life of, right. of the family as uh, not just the kids yeah. so good luck we hope your phd um, completely solves this problem um, <laughs> <laughs> you know not to put too much pressure on you but um thanks so much for coming in thank you for having me thank you miss kylie smith is a speech pathologist and phd candidate at the murdoch children's research institute and the royal children's hospital we're going to take a break for some music folks and we'll be back in just a moment i think uh either chris kp or dr jen's going to talk about three Um, Chris KP, uh, you want to talk about a very highbrow topic. I want to talk about sphincters. Uh, frankly, I don't understand why we don't talk about them more often. <laughs> Should but be let more me, of it. You're let about me, well, to find let out. Me, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> let me, can I just urge listeners, and also people in the studio here, just see if you can, if you can find someone who you can look at quite closely, like in their face. Um, perhaps their eyes, in fact. Um, and I know this, this is going to create awkward moments in cafes, uh, yeah, where people are sitting alone listening to this on their, <laughs> on their <laughs> mobile it's not too weird. Look closely at someone's eyes, and you'll notice that uh, they've got an iris, which you know, which can open and close. Um, and we know this is because of light. When there's more light, it's, it's smaller. When there's less light, it's wider. This is operated by a sphincter. Oh, this is the pupillary sphincter. So, in fact, it is true that the sphincters are the window to the soul. <laughs> and, and so I, there is nothing, there is nothing that uh, should drive us further down the sphincter path than just that concept alone. Um, a sphincter is simply a, a circular muscle. It's really all it is, but they are all over the place. They're in the region of 50 different kinds of sphincter inside your body right now. Mm. Um, there is, of course, you know, the most celebrated glamorous sphincter, but I'll get to that in a moment. Before we do that, let's talk about a few others. Um, now, so there's, there's your eyes. Um, your stomach has two of these, um, which are incredibly important. The one at the very top part, your esophageal or cardiac sphincter, um, is the one that basically stops your stomach stuff bubbling back up into your esophagus, which is really nasty and causes heartburn. Interestingly, um, it's only part of the closing structure there, and in, in rats, the structure is, is different. It's just it's the same bits, but they're separated mm. differently, which is why rats can't vomit. They've kind of got a, a, a greater separation and a really, really strong cardiac sphincter. So they actually find it very hard to overcome that the strength of that muscle in order rats to vomit. Really can't vomit. Almost never. Wow. It's incredibly That's the rare. You learn. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and this is lucky I came This is one of the today. reasons well, one of the reasons they're so susceptible to poison. They'll ingest ah. the poison. In fact, interestingly, you'll like this. One of the reasons that, one of the ways they get around that You'll like something to do with yeah. poison. <laughs> and rats. Um, <laughs> one of the ways they get around that is they're incredibly fussy about food. They'll taste something and if they don't like it, they Spit will it. really, really incredibly avoid it from then on. Mm. Um, but if they swallow it and it's poisonous, it's too late. <laughs> is that the same sphincter that makes us hiccup? 
Uh, it, it, it can be. Uh, it, well, it's not necessarily the sphincter, but it can be, that can be your diaphragm too, but it's associated with that, yes. Mm, okay. um, yes, the spasming. Good point. Um, and it relaxes when you need to burp and stuff as well. So it's not, you know, totally uh, out of control, if you like. Uh, anyway, they go on and on. Um, there is, of course, your urethral sphincter, which stops you wetting yourself, which is important. Um, there's the ileocecal sphincter, which operates between the large and small intestines. So oh, you yeah. do a lot of digestion work in your small intestine, and then when that's all done, you've got to let the, you know, that matter through into your large intestine. You don't want to do it too early. You don't want it to flow back up again because any time you get the flow going the wrong direction, bad stuff happens. Um, it is worth noting, of course, that uh, this is not just us. Koalas have a sphincter in their pouch. Um, because they have quite a flexible and somewhat backwards opening pouch, which when you're in a tree off the ground is a dangerous place for a baby to be. So they need to be able to close that up. It's quite an active closing up of that, of that space. And there is, I've learned, some conjecture about whether or not a whale's blowhole is technically operated by a sphincter or not. It looks like it is. If you see them, they open up and they close down. It's a ring-shaped thing. But there's a bit of debate as to whether it's a sphincter or a series of other muscle groups and stuff. But that's a whale anatomist's, uh, yeah, argument, but I like well, to think I would it think is. most marsupials have a sphincter around their pouch because if you're trying to look inside the pouch of a sedated possum, which I have done yes. millions of times, the animal is, you know, sedated. Yes. But it's, you know, the pouch is still tightly closed. I think the difference is that some require a different a different strength of sphincter for a start because of what they're doing. So in, in possums, they're quite active. So it's important that they can, you know, keep the baby inside when they're jumping around from branch to branch. Koalas are much more sedate, but they're very high up. Mm. Uh, and they've got a larger mass too. The, the joey's quite large, you know, mm. when it's in there. Um, I don't know what the story is with kangaroos, actually. That would be something for you to research. <laughs> Maybe you can answer that for us, finally. Um, <laughs> but yes, I, I think you're quite right that it's 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 quite common. Less common in us because we haven't got pouches. Uh, more. Which is a shame. It is, it is oh, actually a shame. I mean, you'd think we would have evolved one by now. It seems like such a good idea. It's a great Doesn't idea. Doesn't it? Yeah, I would have thought so. Anyway. Male swimmers need them. Male swimmers? <laughs> Streamlining. Oh, right. There's, <laughs> an, there's an aquatic, there's an aquatic <laughs> possum. I mean, not a possum. What am I talking about? There's an aquatic marsupial that basically <clears throat> the male has a pouch and he puts his testicles in there so that he's more streamlined. To is swim. that right? Yeah, he's South what, American. Because he, he hasn't got gaffer tape. That makes you streamline too if you know how to use it. Um, Moving right along. Well, yeah. I, see, I'd trade off the pouch for some shark skin. Yeah, oh, yeah, hello. Awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, scratchy though. And the fin too. The fin <laughs> would really help. Happy to have the wing keel with the shark skin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No problem. A great deal of control to make a wing keel. Um, okay, so I, I, look, I will quickly mention the anal sphincter because I know that that's what everyone's looking what, for. What is your favourite sphincter, Chris? I'm about to get to that. I'm, uh, it's not, and it's not the anal one. <laughs> So the reason, the reason I like the anal sphincter is because, and it's not my favourite, is because um, it is actually perpetually contracted. It's, you know, Ooh. its natural position is tight and closed, and that's what you want, because <laughs> you don't want leakage, right? That's bad. It's socially unacceptable, and it makes a mess of your clothes. But when you get enough matter inside the, you know, your rectum, what happens is that sphincter then goes, well, obviously it's time to relax, and it just relaxes. But that's not always awesome either. And that's why you've got a second one. You've got the inner sphincter and the outer sphincter. And the outer anal sphincter is the one you can voluntarily go, no, job interview, clamp down. <laughs> no, first date, clamp down. Um, so you've got both, so you're allowed to have some control. Without that, it would just be, you know, free-for-all. Nature would ha- take its course, frankly, and it would be unpleasant. Especially Is that, is that what happens on planes at high altitude? Because I've found... 
an inability to contain certain things. If you're not comfortable, so, yeah. so for the stars to align or do the sphincters to align, for the rings to align, you need to have a need to go, mm. and therefore it's going to relax and open, and you need to want it, that you want to go. Can and I just so say, you men, opens. this conversation is very distracting, and it certainly ain't sexy. I, well, okay, let me make it sexy it's for science, you. and science isn't always sexy, I'll have you know, Dr. Jen. Warts, really sphincters and all. <laughs> let, me, let me make it sexy for you. The other place, please, the other place please. right throughout your bodies that you have got, uh, in fact, I know for a fact, Dr. Jen, that you um, experienced this earlier today, you have sphincters all over you, near, not in, but very close mm, to I your capillaries. Yes. Pre-capillary sphincters are the little tiny bands of muscle before you get to capillaries, which are able to clamp down and control blood flow. Now, right now, I'm sure across Melbourne there are people whose hands are cold. Mm. The reason mm. your hands are cold is because it's cold generally and your body is said, we need to get our blood flow around our core, keep your vital organs warm. Quite frankly, you can have cold hands for a while, deal with it. Likewise, cold feet, cold nose, cold ears, etc. That control is those pre-capillary sphincters clamping down on blood vessels to control the flow. So not only are sphincters the window to the soul, but we can now rewrite the phrase, cold hands, active sphincters. Is that the end? <laughs> I, that's probably enough. I mean, it's a beautiful place to stop. Don't get me wrong. I just want to be sure that we've completely covered off this. Certainly this as far as I think we need to go. Yeah. Look, folks, uh, I did get an email from uh, Chris Gabe in m- midweek when he said, you know, I'd like to do my story on sphincters. What do you think? And I sent back, hmm, your call. <laughs> that, was, that was dangerous. Which I had hoped would send a message that perhaps... A red rag to a bull. Yeah, yeah but anyway... You know, but look, I've got to be honest with you. I've learnt. Uh, I've actually learnt quite a bit um, during that segment, and um, not stuff I want to learn. But yeah, my work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a short break, uh, folks, and then we're going to talk about Dr. Jen's little uh, junk. I mean, trip uh, research trip up to uh, the Northern Territory, um, and this is a result of many, many people and their very generous donations to her crowdfunding and her and her, her good uh, husband uh, Ewan's crowdfunding project to do the root count up north and work out just what we've got walking around. And Jen's going to give us all the gory details about how the science works and what that trip will be about when we get back. Until then, here's uh, some tunes for you. Three. Triple. Ah. And there we go. It's kind of a sudden ending. Uh, the tracks you've heard today, folks, were first up, of course, was The Tiger and Me, A Mad Tom of Bedlam, played especially for Dr. Crystal. Then we had uh, 19th Century Strongman with Neil Armstrong. Love that song. If you listen to the words, really cool. And then the one you just heard was The Greats with Turn Me On, and that was for Chris KP after his sphincter talk. Whatever works for you, pal. <clears throat> Now, uh, we thought we would drag Dr. Jen in here on her last show before she goes away. Well, I just worked that out. That's a bit yeah, sad. Yeah, yeah. I'll still be sad. in on Wednesdays for another month or so. Right, for... Um, uh, the Science Fest. <laughs> yeah. So I was trying to remember, what is that show that's on early in the morning? <laughs> Something to do with breakfast? Yeah, that, that one. Yeah, that yeah. one. Um, but we thought we should uh, just explore a bit what you're actually doing. Because a lot of people I know who um, support the program and love the program and love 
love what you do here and on Breakfasters, have supported your crowdfunding yeah, program. Yeah, it's been amazing. We've been so yeah. humbled by the support. Because lots of people say when you crowdfund, it's just peer funding. It's only your friends mm. and family who come out in support. But in our case, that's not true. Because every mm. time somebody pledges, we get an email with that person's name. And every time it's like, do you know who that is? Do you know who that is? No, I've never heard of them. How can we thank them? Because, you know, we try and immediately thank people via Twitter or Facebook or email as soon as a pledge comes in. And often it's yep. like, we don't know this person. We don't know how to thank them. Yeah, it's fantastic. So incredible. What's, the, what's the story of how you decided to crowdfund this project? Like, like where did where did you, you just like at, sitting around the kitchen table one night and you think, you know what, we should uh, just uh, put up a website and ask people <laughs> for money? It's a really good question because a lot of people have said to us, "Is this because you couldn't get funding anywhere else? Is this the last, you know, last ditch attempt at, at being able to do this work?" And that couldn't be further from the truth. So, the quick backstory, which I think many of the listeners know, is that this um, original work was Ewan's PhD. I was fortunate enough to get to do a lot of the field work with him. So 10 years ago, he wrapped up that research and came out with a, a fairly detailed story about um, the kangaroos and wallabies of tropical northern Australia and kind of what correlates with where they are, where they aren't. You know, the first first of its kind data about these species, essentially. And then 10 years has gone past and we've moved on to different things. And over the last couple of years, it really dawned on us that there is nobody working on these animals. Nobody has any idea. You know, some of these species were very common, but even very common species can go extinct really mm. quickly. Yeah. And we would have no idea because nobody is mm. up there. A lot of people doing work on small mammals in northern Australia, but that's mostly in the Northern Territory. And in fact, most of our sites are in Cape York rather than the Northern mm. Territory. And we just both realised that you know we have to get back there. We have to do this so that we can find out how things have changed or whether they've changed. Perhaps it'll be this great new story that actually you know these populations appear to be very robust and everything's fine. But mm. so then the next step, yeah. and we would have no idea because nobody mm. is up there. A lot of people doing work on small mammals in Northern Australia, but that's mostly in the Northern Territory. And in fact, most of our sites are in Cape York rather than the Northern mm. Territory. And we just both realised that you know we have to get back there. We have to do this so that we can find out how things have changed or whether they've changed. Perhaps it'll be this great new story that actually you know these populations appear to be very robust and everything's fine. But mm. so then the next step was well, how much is it going to cost and how are we going to do it? And you know we now have two small children. How does that complicate things? And we realised that we had a fantastic opportunity to get the public involved because as you know we're both really keen on sharing science you know with the public in any way we can. We realised we didn't actually need very much money in the scheme of things. You know we weren't talking a massive ARC grant. We mm. really just needed enough money to hire a four wheel drive and pay for the fuel essentially. And we realised that not much money, a topic that we hoped we could get the public inspired about and interested in and we could launch it as crowdfunding and see what happened and you know we kind of were pretty nervous because you're going to look not stupid but it, it was certainly anxiety raising. What if we put it out there and nobody supports us? But you know the response has been amazing. So our initial target was 15,000 which was enough to allow us to return to our Queensland sites and we reached that target with 24 days to go in our campaign. Wow. Mm. Now we've got six days to go and we're still you know we're still very keen to raise more money because the more money we can get the more of our existing sites we can return to so we've got 50 sites or 50 plus a few more sites spread right across Cape York and the Territory and all the way over to the Kimberley and yeah the more money we can get the more sites we can kind of you know add on to our trip. Now, now Dr Jen as I recall at one point you got some two billion dollar 
pledge or something. <laughs> what happened yep. there? Yeah, that was really early on in, ca- in the campaign, and with hindsight, it was one of the best things that could have happened because mm. it resulted in publicity. Um, publicity. We got a piece in uh, BuzzFeed, a piece in the Daily Mail, and a couple of people said to us, "Did you, you know, did, did you, you set it? this up?" <laughs> it's like, God, if I'd been smart Chris, enough Chris to Kobe. do that, yeah, you owe me big time. <laughs> <laughs> was it you? Was it you? I wish. No, so basically, the way possible, or, or you know, any of the crowdfunding platforms work is you, you know you make a pledge and you don't get any of the money until you reach your target. Right. So, you know, if we've got $14,990 and we've closed at that, we would have got not a cent. So yep. you have to reach your target. <laughs> but somebody went on and originally the story was that it was a hoax. Somebody wanted to make us look stupid or silly or just be mean, whatever, and make this $2 billion pledge. And so that's kind of the story that went out. And so we, I don't know if we got sympathy votes or not, but people were like, oh, wow. And we immediately had a quick power and said, let's use this to our advantage. Let's go with these big um, publicity machines because we haven't done anything wrong. Mm. And rather than play the victim, let's say, who cares whether it was real or not? Let's just imagine for a moment what we could do mm. if we had $2 yeah, billion. Really and the story turns out that you could actually save you know, every species in Australia right, for, a, yeah. for a tiny fraction of that. But it actually turns out it doesn't look as though it was a hoax at all. Now, for all the people out there with much more IT information than I have, I don't really understand this, but apparently that number, which is two point whatever billion, is the largest possible value that a, uh, what is it, a positive 32-bit integer can have oh, or something. Really? It's some known oh, number. Right. But it translated to our, you know, our, um, yeah, our campaign suddenly being fully funded with more than $2 billion. And fortunately, it was only there for a couple of hours, and I was teaching, but fortunately, Ewan let me know on the mobile what had happened, and I took a quick screenshot. Right. And I think if yeah. I hadn't had that screenshot yeah, of our campaign trouble. saying two point blah, blah, mm. blah, 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 billion dollars, we might how, not have got how, the how it, publicity. How does it work? It. Could you have transferred that money directly into an account? <laughs> no. Well, they haven't paid as yet. Well, no. yeah, that's what I mean. Can, yeah, can yeah. you sort of go, oh, we'll turn the pledges on right now, make that into payment? But I think it was Damn. a brief problem, because I think before Possible realised what had happened, they started processing pledges as though they were fully funded but then this person Jonathan somebody I can't remember the name now um, Jonathan Chris K. Pierce left a phone number and they rang the phone number and the phone number was a dodgy number so look we'll never know the thing that briefly made us think maybe it was real was that with crowdfunding you obviously offer a series of rewards Mm. and Mm. this person selected our top reward which was if you give us 2,000 bucks we will personally take you animal touring around North Queensland Mm. we'll take you spotlighting we'll take you Mm. bird watching you know we will show you this stuff and this Mythical person, you know, ticked that box. Mm, so yeah. that's real enough to be. A they've person, never come yeah. forward again, unfortunately. Now, but. I want to jump on something you said just before because I find it extraordinary. You said that for that kind of money, we could save pretty much every species in Australia. I mean, that seems like chicken feed mm. to me. I mean, yeah. you know, in, in government spending terms, I wrote that a blog. Seems like nothing. I wrote a blog piece about, it, and basically, if we suspended our defence um, mm. budget for three days, we could, you know, we could oh. conserve every species in Australia for wow. a year. We obviously can't say yeah. which three days they're going to be. That would be a defence issue, <laughs> but as long as that was a secret. Yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> yeah, it's all right. the thing for us is what we're doing, yeah. you know, is, and, and compared to all of you and, you know, your own experiences of science, what we're doing is so basic. We basically have these five kilometre transects which we've established so we have data from 10 years ago we drive mm. that transect very slowly with me driving about five kilometres an hour you and on the back of the ute and we count every kangaroo we see of every different species and we see how many there are what kind of you know family or other groupings they're in and then we chuck that into some you know equations and it out you know spits out so, population estimates for us so it's Jen, really simple if it's not stuff. a lot of money and you also made the comment earlier that it's not like it's a massive arc grant or anything like that then is there anyone out there offering 
beyond crowdsourcing, is there actually a small grants model of anything out there? Or is it oh, just- look, there are. But as I said, we decided we mm. really wanted to try and get the public involved because our okay, story sure. is, you know, this could be a major conservation mm. um, issue. There are there are very complex interactions going on. There's a whole lot of different species up there. People think, oh, kangaroo, you know, eastern greys are everywhere. Up mm. there we're talking about kind of six-ish large species, some of which people down here will have never heard of, another three or four small species, which we won't see when we go driving. We need to put out camera traps. Yep in order to be able to pick those up. Um, you know, there are complex interactions. We're looking at um, how much water there is available. We're looking at, you know, getting information about how many dams there are. It wasn't a very good wet season last year, so mm. how much water there is. Fire history is really important. Mm. We know from Ewan's PhD that different species are more or less strongly associated with how often there are fires because, obviously, up there as a farmer, the more often you burn, the more often you get, you know, more grass growing, which is really good for your stock. So that's really important. And then dingoes and cats, which, you know, dingoes will prey on the larger species they may help the smaller species by keeping the cats under Mm. control so we sweep a section of road and then go back the next day and look for footprints and that gives you you know an index of of activity basically and you know this new technology being able to take camera traps with us which we didn't have 10 years ago and the the dna technology has changed massively Mm. so 10 years ago ewan was collecting poo to look at which grass species the kangaroos were feeding on this time we'll be collecting poo because we send it off to a lab and we can find out a what species it comes from and b we can get population estimates looking at the genetic variation so you know we're kind of capitalizing on everything we know from 10 years ago so we can say has it changed or not by returning to these sites but then bringing you know some new technology and depending on how the funding goes in the next six days we may also be able to take a drone with us and compare that's cool yeah so compare what population estimates you get from drone driving camera traps you know all these different dna techniques i can just see you and on the back of the ute controlling the drone (laughs) now uh about three months about three and a half months yep. we're going to go for. Homeschooling the kids in the tent? Yep, homeschooling the kids in the tent. This is not so... going to be a picnic, Jen. No, everybody <laughs> said it's a junket. I'm like, mm, two small kids in a tent <laughs> yeah. and a ute for three and a half months uh, with a lot a of flies. Yeah, yeah, this is not a holiday. And the kids may or may not know it yet, but so you we, know, we have to do dawn surveys and dusk surveys. Well, we may see you back dark. in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, we can't wait. Bring yep. it on. And we just, you know, we genuinely can't wait to see yeah. what we find. We're returning to places we know well, places we love, animals that are just really dear to us as much as you know you can kind of fall in love with all these amazing animals we just want to know if they're okay now very quickly before we have to go um there is still a chance for people to support the program and i think it's amazing so how do they do that they go to possible.com and search for big rue count or just google big rue count and you will find our possible page and the tiniest amount helps you know at this point anything we can get to to contribute is going to make a difference but two billion is not out of the question though if you want to do that oh look if someone had look i'd take two million you know (laughs) I I don't need the building. You do it for the love of it, clearly. Absolutely. Wouldn't it be amazing if in Australia we had really rich people who donated their money to science? Oh, hang Mm. on. That happens in other countries. (laughs) Yes. Well, folks, if you want those really rich people or even just moderately rich or basically can't scrap it together like uh, most of the people in this room, um, help Jen out with this program because it's something that we will talk about many times uh, in terms of the results over the coming year. Um, So it won't be something that goes into the ether. You will hear about what's going on. And we'll be blogging and vlogging Mm. and all that from the field and you know if we do need to find out some bad news this is the way we're going to do it so um, well, we can't yeah. conserve them if we don't know that's right so, so. thank you dr jen dr thank crystal you. good to have you in again always a pleasure see you soon i think you're coming in the next few weeks yes you've got a few in the row uh chris kp thanks mate thanks for the sphincter stuff we're going to leave it now for uh eat it i'm dr shane thanks for listening to einstein at gogo we'll speak to you again next week remember until then science is everywhere 
This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.